This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a wholly original, mind-melting musical comedian who has improvised a life of eclectic experiences from serving as the band leader on CBS's The Late Late Show with James Corden and IFC's Comedy Bang Bang to opening for Conan O'Brien's live national tour. He is the author of the new memoir, Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. Coming up is a man with a bold voice, active looping pedals, and a vast imagination. Get ready for Reggie Watts. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Oh, how are you, pal? You sound mellow. I, I'm super mellow. Yeah, I have to be these days. What with the economy, the way it is. Yeah, naturally, that's that's getting us all mellow, isn't it? <laughs> Let me dive into the memoir. It's the newest thing that you've done, but you're also shining a light on all your growing up times, and it's a Great Falls tell-all and kind of a high wattage. Montana Rama. <laughs> yes. It's a very interesting reflection of the years you had in Great Falls. And it isn't till the very end that you paraphrase some of the later successes that people are aware of. So what for you is the experience of diving into writing the memoir? What did it feel like on that journey before it was published? It was something I wanted to do because I wanted a record of my upbringing and hopefully do something with it, make make it into some kind of a a show of some sort or a short film or a movie or something like that. What's cool about it to me is that it's not just a book. You've inserted QR codes throughout, so it's a little bit of a thrill ride that you can put your camera up to that and pick up some music or some reality. It's almost a time travel moment in the book. How did that notion come to you? I guess, well, you say time travel. I love time travel. By the time I was finishing the book, my, my mother had passed, so I was about like, I'd say like 60% of the way done with the book at that time, and I, and I kind of wanted to preserve as much fidelity of the past as possible, talking to her, talking to other people that were around me when I was growing up as well. So I just wanted to create a sense of as many points of reference to kind of triangulate what happened in my past as possible. I found that kind of a modern metaphysical way to take us into the place and like hearing uh, early first songs as they were. And typically your imagination is doing the work in a novel. But in this case, it was the nuances were so rich. It really did place us. It transported us, I guess. Good, good. <laughs> well, you mentioned your mom. And, and again, I'm sorry for the loss I saw in the book how critical she was to nurturing your creativity. Maybe you could share what it was that she did from an early age that set you free. She just kind of supported whatever I needed. Like she never really tried to edit my behavior other than if I was being rude or something like that, but on a creative level. I think she knew that I was a weird dude and <laughs> she was very kind enough to just kind of allow me to be who, who I was without questioning my behavior. She seemed like an anchor, but also she seemed to be like your your sizzler power station. <laughs> Not like any time in the book where you read going back to that was something that you didn't seem to me to be concerned about how people tried to define you. Was it always that way or early on was there something there where you were 
trying to sort of make a point of the weirdness or anything like that? I don't think I was ever kind of shoehorning or anything like that. I, I just love the way that I perceived the world and was very comfortable with just being who I was. And, you know, even if people thought it was strange, I just thought that that was okay. I mean, like it wasn't enough for me to, to like change the way I was. I mean, I'm sure there are many exceptions where I wanted to fit in and I, you know, I tried different things to fit in for sure. But like, I, I guess I was just very comfortable with how I went about the world. I think that's one of the more admirable things that people see right away, especially in the sets that you do. And I call it sets because you are so improvising so much. It's not always the routine. It's not always what People think of a stand-up that might do the same thing over and over. You're using a skill set many different ways. But I happened to see you. There was an Arts Midwest conference. And what was interesting to me is it seemed like an unlikely audience for you. It was probably a midday or afternoon thing. You came into the room and you picked up things and you created one of your amazing songs. And everybody got on the ride. <laughs> but that comes from a certain amount of confidence that you know where you're taking people because they have no idea what you're up to. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. You know, I, I love it because, like, I partially don't know where I'm going either. It's nice to kind of take everybody along on on that ride. So in, in a way, like, I, I like it because I'm, in many ways, I'm I'm equally on the same page when I'm doing those things, which I... Which I kind of think is funny. <laughs> well, it is funny, but it's also like surfing. Like every wave is going to be different, but it feels like you are kind of going with the flow. And, you know, I guess it's a musical flow or the comedic consciousness. Or... <laughs> yeah, the absurdity of, of everything. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely am aware of the fact that I'm doing that. So I do try to, I mean, yes, every, every time is different ultimately, but it's nice to be concerned about the audience coming along as well, even though I do like a certain level of confusion. <laughs> so you're not the guy to ask for directions to the best restaurant in town. You like that kind of confusion? No, I would, I would honestly give a try. I wouldn't want to like purposely mislead someone in a functional way, but uh, no. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm saying that sort of kiddingly, but the amount of times that I was driving and stopped and a stranger said, you know, go down there, and you're going to see the big red barn, but don't turn there. And that's like they're giving you all kinds of chaos along the way. And then you have to ask two more people before you get there. But take me back, will you, to the East Village, to that club called, is it Rafifi, where you first started yeah. doing time? And this was when you made a sort of a bit of a change from being a musician to becoming a comic in some ways. Did I read into that in the book? That's partially true. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd done comedy not necessarily to make a living in any way until I moved to New York, until I made a conscious decision to focus on comedy. When I moved to New York, yeah, it was beginning days. I wasn't necessarily sure if it would work out, but that's where it started. So so Rafifi was really where I, for real, started my comedy career. And what kind of club was that? It was in the East Village. It was on 11th Street between 1st and 2nd. It was a There was a bar in the front. I forgot the name of the bar, but the back of the club had a video rental space, uh, and that was called Rafifi. But then they started having shows back there, and Eugene Mermin and Bobby Tisdale, I guess, found the space and started this comedy night, Invite Them Up. That's kind of what it became. It just became this weird makeshift space that turned into an incredibly 
potent and powerful kind of a club for comedians so it had like this clubhouse feel to it it wasn't really comedy club vibes right right i mean they found it as a a clubhouse we'll call it once they had enough space to have an audience they were able to curate shows i guess that met their taste yeah exactly that's what it was yeah it was just kind of all 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 a let's see experiment you know and then just chain reacted and what kinds of equipment at that point do you carry in? Do you, like when you walk into a situation that's a club like that, is everything in hand for you or is it pre-set up? Or? Back then I was only using a one effects pedal. So it was our effects pedal. I, I just would basically get up on stage and plug into a DI that I had. So I would just remove the microphone cable that was plugged into the main microphone and just plug it in the DI and then it, it was ready to go. So it was a pretty simple changeover. So I didn't I didn't have to have any extra to my time of me getting up on stage. Right. And you can get on and get off. It wasn't like you had to wait three hours to go back and pick up the pedal. No, no. I literally, I would just unplug it immediately, replug it back into the microphone, and then I'd, I'd be off stage. Fortunately, it was that way because I love that efficiency of like getting in, getting out, and not uh, inconveniencing anybody. Well, you had the experience of Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which we've talked to a few people on the show that have gone through that. And it's a pretty intense month of performance, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's 28 days of performance, essentially. So, you know, 28 times one, whatever. It's like, you know, it's 20, 280 hours. Or not 280 hours, sorry. That was bad. Terrible math. That's 28. It was about, I would say it's about like plus extra shows and stuff. You probably got to perform about 30, 30 hours of performance time. In the book, you said that you were in the Bank of Scotland. Yes, the former Bank of Scotland, yes. So that was a converted space. There, what, what the audience may or may not know, I'll give them context, is every place in town becomes a performance space or a club for 30, 28 days, essentially, of yeah. madness. And the shows start early in the morning and go into the night. Yeah, that's 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 right. Yeah, that's, it's like shows all day, you know, like shows starting at noon all the way till like three in the morning, four in the morning. Did you have the same time slot every day or were you all over the place? I had the same time slot. I think I think the first year I had the 7.30 time slot and I shared the room, there were other performances. It was actually a pretty sweet schedule the first year. It wasn't, wasn't bad and because I don't rehearse, it's easy for me to sleep in or stay up late, sleep in and then go to my show. <laughs> So it's pretty cool. Now, what I was sort of fascinated by, and almost sounded like state fair food, is that you you got into the deep fried cheeseburger. Oh my god! I don't know if people know, but in Scotland, or at least Edinburgh, there's this fascination with frying everything, and they have these fryeries where you show up and you can bring stuff to have fried. If you want to, they specialize in a bunch of different fried things, but they had this thing called the fried cheeseburger, which I was interested in. And so was Eugene Merman, who was there the first year we, we were both there together. I tried it and it's not what you think. It's not a hamburger or a cheeseburger. And then they like, they just throw it in the fryer or bread it or something like that. It's, it's the patty. Essentially, it's an all beef patty that they stuff with cheese. So the center has cheese in it. And then there's the meat. And then they bread the meat. And then they deep fry the patty. And that's the deep fried cheeseburger. And they had a registration sheet on a clipboard. If you ordered it, you had to write down your name and you had to like mark off, sign off on having one because you weren't allowed to have more than two per week. 
Oh, right. And then did you have to have a cosign from a cardiologist as well? Yeah, I know. And there should have been. I mean, that's what it felt <laughs> like. I mean, it was very like intense because to, to, I mean, for them to have this sign up sheet, you know, for a piece of food <laughs> that you're about, I've never had, I've never ever done that. But for good reason, because that shit is so heavy. I couldn't finish it. I, I had like maybe half of one. It's so, so much fat. Oh my God. It was insane. That was just heavy. I, I couldn't believe that. I was like, who would eat? Why? Yeah. Well, it almost <laughs> sounds like a cheese Frenchie, but the cheese inside must have been melty and like it must have been a a yeah. pretty good experience until you got halfway. It's like a seesaw where the experience goes from orgasmic tasting to I got to get out of this prison. Yes, yeah, like 100%. It was very, very fast. It didn't take that many bites because I was truly excited. I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. I love cheeseburgers. And then, of course, it was all right. In a conversation with Jerry Seinfeld, he was watching something backstage before the show, and they were talking about this Nashville hot chicken and he realized we're in Nashville. So as soon as we get done with the show, we got to go to this place and get this hot chicken. Like he just loved what they were yeah. talking about. And they took him to this trailer and the woman behind there, when he said, I want it, he's like, you can't handle it, man. You got to go down a level. He goes, no, no, I really want, he bought it. He bit into it. He started crying. His nose started running. Like she was right. And everybody around the trailer was laughing at him and his timing was perfect when he saw it. I think I'm that way. When you're touring, don't you want the sort of eclectic, sure. what's the thing to do in this town that can't be done anywhere else in the world experience? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. I, it may not be the best decision, but I definitely want to say that I tried. You're there and it's that zone and you're probably not going to run into it again. In your travels, is there a thing that surprised you more than anything, either food-wise or museum-wise or something where you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I stumbled into this Mecca? I'm trying to think. I, I The only thing I can really think of, I'm sure there's there's probably a ton, but what comes to mind right now is there's a, Berlin was really fun for me. I mean, I, I expected to like it, but it just, they've really dialed in nightlife. They know how to do nightlife. And did you get around to the music scene there and just kind of swim in the deep end of the pool? Music wise, like live music, I haven't really found any leads on that. I mostly was hanging out in the club, club night, the club space, like techno DJs and producers and stuff like that. And that was kind of what I gravitated to. Maybe I'll try to find, you know, some live music situations. Is there a big evolution going on in that scene? I think that there's something going on there. A lot of people are moving there. And for like a lot of my friends from London are moving to Berlin and, uh, a lot of producers, and there's a stand-up scene going on there, and which is pretty incredible. So I don't know, something's going on there. Well, now that you're international in terms of the kinds of things that you can experience, do you find uh, that an obstacle from a language standpoint, or are you able to sort of cross over because of what you learn and how you do it? Or I guess I wonder how much of a challenge that is if you're performing internationally. It's not too bad. I enjoy it. I mean, my, my mother's French, and I definitely grew up uh, exposed to a lot of different languages and different cultures. And so when I go there, it's not really too alien. I, I feel like I can always figure out a way to make it work. I mean, certain countries speak English more uh, inherently, and some countries or some cities even less so. And so depending on that, I'll modify how much English I'm using as opposed to kind of multi-linguistic gibberish 
stuff. Uh, speaking of gibberish, uh, there was a brief chapter in your book where it said Reggie's glossary of terms, and <laughs> there was only one word there, as I recall, which was the word throve, T-H-R-O-V-E. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when did you first start using the word throve? Well, I don't use it that often, but I think it was just funny to put in the book. I always like thinking of fake past tenses of words. <laughs> and, uh, um, this and, is what, uh, to me, again, I don't want to define you by any of this because what I find unique about you is that you're keeping everybody in a surprise element. That little moment was just like a palate cleanser between story and other things. And it, yeah. it's a smile. It seems to me like you live for experiences or adventure or a newness in some ways, but by searching in that improvisational world, you would rather walk into circumstances you don't know than do something the same every day. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I'm definitely more interested in finding out. Like, even if I've done something over and over again, I love the feeling of uh, finding a new way of doing that thing and really exhausting those possibilities. So was that a different experience when you began to be in a more a mainstream routine, like when you joined CBS's Late Late Show? Maybe start with how that invitation came about. How did it get presented to you? I just finished my stint or filming with Comedy Bang Bang, and uh, I was in L.A., and I was living in New York at the time. And I was getting ready to go back to New York. And I got a call from, I think it was my manager, just said that this guy wants to talk to you about his talk show that he'll be doing, a talk show that's take, taking over the same slot as Ferguson. And I was like, okay, sure. And then uh, went to this hotel for a meeting in Beverly Hills. And it was James Corden and the showrunner, Ben Winston. And... They basically described, like, you know, the show that they want to do, and they were looking for a band leader. And then I think Ben Ben left at one point to just, I guess, for just me and James to vibe. And we hit it off. And, I mean, I, he basically was just saying, like, I don't, there's nobody else I want for this job. I want you to do it. And whatever you need, we'll make sure that you can leave right after the show's done. You can, you can show up, like a half an hour before the show and then like leave like right after the show you know you'd, you'd hardly be there for any time and i was like oh well, you're speaking my language i like it <laughs> yeah and then they just they told me i could you know choose whatever band i wanted to choose and put it together any way i wanted to so, so that's how it came about it was great well you do mention in the book should we keep it a surprise <laughs> that there was an edible that sealed the deal or something yeah for sure i mean i you know i love thc and i love edibles and there was a moment where I just offered him a chocolate and and he immediately took it. It was really cool. And I was like, that's pretty smart. Whether he <laughs> wanted to or not, him just doing it, it was like him saying, I trust you and I'm serious about my offer. So I thought that was pretty smart. Yeah, I, well, I thought that was really, I mean, that amused me in the book, but also it sounded like he just did it, popped it in his mouth. That is definitely one of those Princess Bride moments about switching the cups or whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so when the <laughs> pandemic came along and wow, that was like a whole different situation with late night television. Yeah. How did you feel about that? And it felt like everybody had to sort of navigate their own waters, but- you guys did a pretty interesting series of things there, I thought. Yeah, I mean, everybody got really creative. Like, all the shows got creative. I think we did a really good job of figuring out how to 
make it work. And it was just a lot of patchwork with Zoom and, you know, figuring out audio and audio programs and, you know, how to record audio while we're doing it live and a lot of problems to solve. But but, but I love solving problems. So for me, it was kind of fun to figure out how are we going to do the audio? How are we going to cue things? And it, it, it worked out. We figured out a system and it kind of got into a groove and then we were able to go back into the studio again, but in a limited capacity. And it was just like a slow coming back to show. But during that time, I always thrive when things get thrown off like that because I'm like, oh, cool. Let's, let's figure out how we can make this work. Well, I like that too. I like that relationship between you and James in terms of there was a wryness about what was going to happen next. I mean, I think you're so good at that go with the flow of thing, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. I love it. Was it in uh, Edinburgh where you won the Andy Kaufman Award or was that somewhere else? No, I got the Andy Kaufman Award. That was in New York. It was a contest. I think it was the third year that I tried out for it, that they were doing it, that I tried out. And it's just like a series of r- rounds. You know, you perform and they're judges. And so I, I won that third one. But in Edinburgh, I did win kind of a similar award. Um, it was the Malcolm Hardy Award. Malcolm Hardy was a UK, kind of Kaufman-esque, but like he was a prankster. And uh, okay. he was a performer. But he was just known for these crazy stunts he would do. Like he stole Freddie Mercury's 40th birthday cake. He stole an MP's car and was known to just steal things all the time. He was the host of one of the first alternative comedy nights in in London, or I guess possibly in the world, The Tunnel. He was just like a crazy host. It was like very shambolic strange man he had a bit that he did on bbc television with balloons where he had all these balloons and the balloons kept popping but he was naked underneath and he was just left with one balloon and it was like this kind of funny campy music that he was dancing to and he got creative with you know that balloon if you lived in the uk you probably know it but he was just kind of like a a a beloved scoundrel prankster comedian guy and uh, his family he had died and for for a while and his family decided to create an award at the edinburgh fringe festival and so i won the first malcolm hardy award and so that was kind of an amazing thing to win the kaufman award and then kind of like the british kaufman award as well i was like those are all the awards (laughs) i need yeah, no, that's a pretty a good collection you got going there. Yeah. And then you got to open uh, along the way for Conan O'Brien's live national tour, which was called Legally Prohibited from Being Funny on Television. Yes. And that was quite a moment in his career where The Tonight Show had been taken away and he wasn't, he was between things. I really admired his ability to go out and be proactive about doing something as opposed to taking the money and going off into a lair somewhere. Conan is such a unique guy in terms of wanting to make people laugh. And that tour was really cobbled together with all kinds of eclectic things, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it kind of came together pretty quickly after he was let go from The Tonight Show. They kind of rustled it together. And I'm glad that someone mentioned me to him because I remember reading about it or hearing about it. Obviously, the whole comedy community knew about it. Like, he would have been let go and everyone was really bummed about it and were pissed at Jay Leno and all the stuff. And then you heard like, I think he's going to go on this live tour. And it was really like, oh yeah, I heard he's going on this live tour. And then like two days later, my manager's like, uh, Conan wants you to open for him on his live tour. I was like, what? That makes no awesome. sense at all. How long were the sets and how many cities did you play? I want to say we did like 11 or 12 dates 
Yeah, we went all over. I mean, we went to the south, and and I think we ended. I'm not sure where we ended. I don't know if we ended in L.A. I think we ended somewhere else, but it was great. I mean, sometimes we would fly. Sometimes there would be a bus. It was awesome. I mean, it was one of the best tours. I'd, I'd been on a few bus tours before, but that was the the most, I don't know, it's like very well-funded. You know, they only had one sponsor. I think it was just American Express was the only sponsor for it. We stayed in like amazing hotels and uh, the shows were incredible. And they had like insane guests. Every every city we went to, there would be guests. Chris Isaac was a guest on there, Neil Young. And it was awesome. It was a real dream. Yeah, and Conan's fantasy list of guests, I'm sure they put out every invitation. Anyone, you know, everybody was probably game to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, it was just like one of those things where everyone was so stoked to be a part of it and to, you know, make the best of it. And the spirit, the energy for the tour was just incredible. Well, before we sign off, I wonder whether or not if you were to give a roadmap to somebody who wanted to be a unique weirdo out there in terms of keeping their voice, because as we've talked about all these different experiences, you've had very unique opportunities because you had a voice like no other. Your skill set and your tools and your look and everything that you do has led to very eclectic invitations. So if you're talking to somebody who was that kind of person, what would you tell them in terms of protecting their vantage point? So I'd just say, like, you know, you just got to listen to yourself and, and follow the fun. Continue to have a good time and, and go do things that support yourself having a good time because when you're on stage or whatever you're creating, it's a blast coming up with crazy, dumb shit. And whether it's just you by yourself or you with other people or you by yourself in a community, that's the only thing you have to worry about is just just protect each other's ability to be who, who you are and don't try not to have other people come in and try to cast doubt on that, which is fine because that's just a challenge to it. But really, it, your job is very easy. It's just have a good time and make stuff that you would want to see yourself, you know, if you were in the audience. Oh, that's good perspective. Well, the new memoir is called Great Falls, Montana, Fast Times, Post-Punk Weirdos, and A Tale of Coming Home Again. If they want to find you on social media, I understand it's at Reggie Watts. Is any of your music on Spotify or anywhere of that nature where if somebody wanted to, other than going into the book with their with their phone and the QR codes? <laughs> Yeah, I have a solo record from 2003. It's really, really old. It is available on all the streaming platforms, and I have a ton of music on there. If you just put in my name, a bunch of stuff will come up, but I also have an electronic music project called Wahada. Uh, that's me and L.A. producer uh, John Tejada. That is also available on all streaming platforms. We have, I think, two albums and an EP. Hey, thanks for covering a little bit of time for me. We'll keep watching what we consider to be the great civic treasure of Great Falls, Montana. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. 
You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun. Bye for now. Call.